Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Coming up, China calls on the Philippines to remove its illegally grounded vessel. We look at why a rusted out World War II Philippine warship has been grounded in Renai Jiao for over 20 years. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi holds phone conversation with his Russian counterpart Sergei Lavrov. We provide further insights into the dynamics of China-Russia relations. And as Chengdu University Ad comes to a close, we will reflect on the most memorable moments from this year's games. First, on today's show, China's foreign ministry has repeated its call for the Philippines to remove its grounded warship in Renaijiao. Last week, the Philippines sent two vessels that intruded into the adjacent waters of Renaijiao and tried to deliver construction materials for overhauling and reinforcing the grounded military vessel. China's foreign ministry stated that Renaijiao has always been part of China's Nansha Chindao, and the Philippine side's action violated China's sovereignty and the declaration on the conduct of parties in the South China Sea. The ministry said the on-site operations of China's Coast Guard have been professional and restrained. For more, we are now joined on the line by Rong Ying, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow at China Institute of International Studies. Dr. Rong, thanks for joining us. Um, thank you for having me. Um, so can you first provide an overview of the recent incident and what has led to this escalation? Yeah, I think as you rightly said at uh, the introduction, uh, the incident happened uh, just because uh, the Philippine side disregard of Chinese uh, communications repeatedly um, and a warning that uh, the Philippines should not uh, do as it did uh, to for the sake of uh, I mean stability of the situation on the on the ground or in the uh, on the water and the Chinese uh, maritime uh, police uh, in uh, fulfilling its duty to safeguard China's sovereignty and territorial integrity and, and acts as a, a law enforcement forces and uh, stop actually uh, uh, the uh, illegal activities of the Philippines. And uh, that's, I think, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that, that's a story. That's the incident. And mm-hmm. it, is, it was caused by the Philippine side, the illegal uh, sort of uh, attempts, uh, illegal moves that created the problems on the, uh, in, 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 the, in the water of the Renaijiao. Yes, so the Philippines grounded a warship near Renaijiao in 1999. Could you provide some more details on the history of this incident and its implications for the current situation? Well, the, the, uh, certainly I think the question of uh, Renaijiao and the, the Chinese side has made it very clear. It has been uh, the uh, uh, territory of, chi- of China. And China has all the uh, historical and uh, legal grounds to support its claim. And, uh, but of course, uh, the Philippine side uh, has also made its claim on that. And the China, I think, uh, as it's managing its disputes with its neighbors and others, uh, has always upheld the principle of, uh, of uh, resolving or managing these disputes uh, through uh, talks and the negotiation. 
And pending, I mean, the uh, sort of a settlement of these issues, I think it is also a practice uh, that uh, neither side should take unilateral steps or measures to undermine or upset the ground situation. And I think uh, the incident, as we know, started in 1999 when the Philippine side, uh, the Philippines uh, deliberately uh, grounded a warship uh, on the Renaijiao, creating a new situation or new status, uh, sort of quo, uh, in the case, in, in the, in, and thinking that they would, would reinforce its claim. This is, I think, uh, the, the, the cause of the problem, the root cause of the problem. And then in the, afterwards, uh, the Chinese side has made representations and call upon, urge the Philippine side to, to remove that grounded warships. And the Philippine side agreed. But 24 years have passed. They have never uh, implemented or never, I mean, delivered that uh, pledge. Instead, as we have seen this in this incident, they have made repeated efforts to not only, I think, trying to reinforce uh, the facilities, but also, of course, as position, uh, stationed Marines, military service persons on that. And I think this step, the recent, the most recent one, is an attempt that to further uh, consolidate its uh, position. Making that, I mean, to into a permanent sort of making it as a posting on uh, on Lanaijiao, uh, the permanent basis uh, facilities to reinforce its uh, uh, its claim. That is, I think, illegal. That goes against the principle, actually, agreements between the two sides on managing the uh, disputes like that. And by the way, I think China and the Philippines. Uh, did have agreements on how to manage disputes like that. Mm -hmm. And that creates the problem uh, to which I think the Chinese side would have to deal with. Yes, so China stated that China's Coastal Guard operations were conducted in accordance with the law. So could you elaborate on the legal basis for China's action in expelling the Philippine vessels? Well, of course, as a Chinese uh, mar maritime uh, uh, police forces, I think they are certainly entitled to fulfill uh, their uh, their duty in maintaining safeguarding China's territorial integrity. But more importantly, as I said, that on the question like I think uh, like that, uh, China and the Philippines has bilateral agreements on do that, and furthermore. China and the uh, ASEAN, the 10 ASEAN countries, on, uh, in 2002 has signed an, uh, called a document called a Declaration uh, on Parties in the South China Sea, in which specified clearly how to manage uh, disputes like that. And related to that, specifically related to that, is neither side of the disputed parties or parties to the dispute should make unilateral move to upset the, the ground situation, to cause uh, tension or problem. So I think the Philippine side, the move has goes against the, the, the international law, goes against the uh, bilateral agreement. 
and of course goes against to the uh, uh, I think law of China, and this uh, that's why I think Chinese uh, maritime police uh, forces has all the right to uh, uh, to fulfill to to act, to do what to whatever appropriate, and and as you said that the what the Chinese maritime police have done has in a very professional and a restrained way. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the Philippines, um, they use the South China Sea arbitration as a legal basis for their actions, right? And China stressed that it does not accept any claims or actions based on the South China Sea arbitration, which China says violates international law and is illegal, null, and void. So how to understand China's ar- legal arguments regarding the South China Sea arbitration? Well, I think China has all the reasons to say it is uh, illegal and effective. I mean, the so-called arbitration and its uh, award that has been delivered. Uh, first and foremost, I think China has made it very clear uh, that the so-called award uh, was established against the uh, international law, including ANCLAS, uh, a very important uh, uh, sort of provision that is a state consent. And China, being a member of UNCLOS, has made very clear that they would not accept, I mean, uh, 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 I mean, things like that. So what China has done is exactly, I think, uh, filled, uh, in according to the uh, to the to the law. And the Philippine side, by uh, by uh, is that sort of putting. Uh, by using or citing uh, this uh, illegal uh, uh, sort of uh, arrangement and trying to impose its illegal award on China. This is uh, simply not the right way, not the legal way. And I think anybody, anyone who knows, who has any knowledge about international law, about ankles and about China's position, will be able to tell that what China has done is legally uh, legitimate and, and has uh, all the legal ground and also, I think, conforms international uh, practice. Well, the U.S. State Department has issued a statement criticizing China for obstructing Philippine vessels and indicating U.S. support for what it called the Philippines' lawful maritime operations. How do you look at that? Well, the United States has no business at all in this uh, matter as a third party. And uh, by the way, we all know that the United States has never been uh, a part of the anchors. So on um, what legal ground for the United States to say the legality of this issue? Besides, I think the Philippines, as I said, as a uh, uh, party uh, to the declaration on the uh, on the conduct of the party of the China Sea, the GOC has agreed to the bilateral uh, sort of approach to manage and resolve the disputes. And I think uh, the United States there, uh, has no room, no nothing, not at all. I think uh, to get uh, in its nose in this business. And I say the sole purpose for that, that is, first and foremost, the dispute or the, the incident itself is encouraged or uh, pushed, actually, by, believed by, uh, by the United States. And the United States uh, thinking that uh, in intervening uh, this uh, inc- I mean, incident or in 
pushing uh, the Philippines to create uh, this problem will have gain, will, will help it to pursue its own interests, uh, to fulfill its own agenda, I think is totally wrong. Mm-hmm. The states really have to respect the efforts made by China, the Philippines, and ASEAN in uh, working out, in resolving or managing their differences. And for the sake of the stability of the region and for the sake of uh, its own interests. I think uh, this is uh, um, an issue that which I think uh, very much clear. Okay, so what measures could China and the Philippines potentially undertake to promote de-escalation and foster a constructive dialogue? That's a good question. I think China, in the statement issued by Ministry of Foreign Affairs, has been very clear. First, uh, firstly, China said uh, China attached importance to uh, Philippines, uh, maritime neighbor, and China has, in the past, worked with the Philippines to reach out some reach some agreements on how to manage disputes like that, and China will continue to do that. And in the meantime, I think uh, China would. Uh, Love and would like the Philippines to work with China to find a way uh, properly address uh, or manage the, uh, the the issues like that. And this is actually the position China has uh, made very clear and related to that. It has warned through its various uh, way means of communication for not bringing large scale uh, uh, building materials to, uh, to the uh, to the to the island to to the to the reef and to create complicated the situation and uh, China would only hope that uh, the Philippines will come to terms uh, with China and work together with China to sit down and uh, uh, talk about these issues so that this, there will be no tension so that I think the situation would be managed in a way that it would not undermine the overall relationship. And China and attach, to which China attach importance, I think Philippines too, and also I think uh, to uh, to make to ensure I think that the overall uh, situation in the region will not be upset or not be uh, damaged. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Rongying, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow at China Institute of International Studies. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi says China and Russia are trustworthy and reliable friends and partners. In a phone conversation with his Russian counterpart Sergey Lavrov, Wang Yi called on the two sides to promote the multipolarization of the world and democratization of international relations. Wang Yi underscored the role of BRICS, saying China is willing to work with Russia and other members of the bloc to promote healthy and vigorous development of the cooperation framework. Wang Yi emphasized that China will uphold an independent and impartial stance on the Ukraine crisis. Sergey Lavrov said Russia agrees with China's position paper on the political settlement on the Ukraine crisis and appreciates and welcomes China's constructive role in this regard. For more, we are now joined on the line by Pavel Felgenhauer, Russian military analyst based in Moscow. Um, so, Pavel, what is your takeaway from this phone conversation and how does this um, reflect the current state of relations between China and Russia? Well, I would say that there were, in recent uh, weeks, most likely, at, at least, 
There's uh, a couple of, uh, if not incidents, or at least hiccups in the uh, Russia-China relationships. And uh, this uh, phone call, we're very much publicized, uh, is to uh, underwrite, uh, underscore that the main strategic uh, intentions of both sides are the same, that the relationship is strong, and that what could be seen as some misunderstandings, like with this incident on the Kazakh-Russian border, where several Chinese were uh, denied entry into Russia and uh, their visas canceled. And, of course, uh, with the, the Chinese participation in the uh, uh, discussions on Ukraine in Saudi Arabia, this, is not, uh, this, this does not undermine the strategic basics of Russia-Chinese very close relationships. Yes, and, and Wang Yi called on the two sides to promote multipolarization and democratization of international relations. How do we understand this? Well, a multipolar world, that's what Russia and China have been promoting and calling for. Uh, basically, that's uh, uh, opposing American hegemonism and the West domination of world politics. And in this, both sides are very much together and, and see together and that's what's going to is the basic uh, the basis of the russian chinese uh, close relationship okay and and wang yi also emphasized china's willingness to collaborate with russia and other brics partners to support south africa in hosting the upcoming brics summit so what key objectives and priorities might be on the agenda for this summit well on this summit apparently the most kind of important burning issue is the enlargement of BRICS, that would be most likely the main discussion, uh, I mean, uh, uh, point of uh, discussion. Uh, Right now, it seems that all members of BRICS so far have agreed that there could be an expansion, but the criteria is not clear. Of course, there are other things on promoting uh, further cooperation of this uh, basically economic uh, discussion club as it was up to now, turning it into an international organization of sorts uh, with a lot of other additional infrastructure. Yes, so actually over 20 countries have expressed their willingness to join the BRICS. Um, So what specific criteria might the BRICS group consider when evaluating potential new members? And how will the potential expansion of the BRICS reshape global political and economic dynamics. Well, actually, that has been the main bone of contention when apparently uh, China, and also clearly supported by Russia, wants a speedy expansion. Other countries, India and uh, Brazil, have uh, kind of reservations and believe that, and do not want actually BRICS to turn into some kind of anti-Western alliance of sorts, uh, since, uh, well, the, the, that's not in their interest, especially for India, which is developing close relationship with the United States and, try, and building up relationships with, with Europe. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of discussion 
uh, on if, if expansion seems inevitable, what and what, what, what the speed and the scope is right now very much up for discussion. Mm-hmm. Yes, and as you mentioned earlier, this phone conversation followed China's participation in the talks in Saudi Arabia on Ukraine crisis, and over 40 countries took part in the talks, but Russia was not present. So in light of these events, how do you interpret the timing of this, this phone call? Well, this phone call is still uh, most likely one he uh, informed uh, uh, his Russian counterpart on what was discussed in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, and also to uh, underline that uh, R- Russia and China are very much together working on this project, that China does not want to exclude Russia at all or uh, in any way ostracize it. Uh, this is, of course, a, a, a very important point. Mm-hmm. Well, Russia has criticized uh, the Jeddah talks as pointless without its um, own participation, and um, it characterized them as an attempt to rally the developing world behind Kiev. How how would you look at this? Well, most likely, yes, the Ukrainians and the West were that's were what they were planning. To what extent that was achieved, apparently not. Uh, The so-called third world, former known uh, non-Western countries are still very much uh, neutral in this conflict. And of course, they want this, uh, this conflict to end because it has negative effects on them and the entire world political scene and economic development. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they are ready to gang up with the West. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Chinese foreign minister emphasized China's commitment to upholding an independent and impartial stance on the Ukraine crisis. What did he mean by independent and impartial? Uh, well, China has been trying this year to promote its own peace plan, to uh, seeking a role of mediation to end this conflict. Up to now, uh, this has been only partially successful. Uh, but I believe that in the future, the, even this year, there could be progress uh, as the autumn and winter come up. And both sides would be totally, I believe, militarily exhausted on the battlefield in Ukraine. That a timely uh, uh, interme- uh, uh, mediation and by such a powerful country as China could actually bring maybe some kind of, if not a peace solution, but some kind of uh, agreement on to limit hostilities for the time being and maybe have some negotiations. And China is going to, to, to be a good intermediary to be a China should be of course uh, neutral and that's uh, impartial and independent so China is actually I believe positioning itself as a possible peace broker in this conflict mm-hmm. so what, what do you think are the main obstacles preventing direct peace talks between Kiev and Moscow at the moment well right now the positions of the two sides are miles apart that's what they both say in Moscow and in Kiev. So right now they seem to be keen on finding a solution on the battlefield. 
but since the solution of the battlefield seems increasingly remote, as both sides are in a kind of tug of war, but no one's getting a clear upper hand, that means that uh, in the coming months, as they run totally out of steam, of supplies, of munitions, they'll have to for, try and find some kind of way to have a pause in the fighting at least. Yes, thank you, Powell Felgenhauer, Russian military analyst based in, based in Moscow. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. China's imports and exports expanded 0.4% in the first seven months of this year to surpass 23 trillion yuan, or around 3.2 trillion U.S. dollars. Exports grew 1.5% to more than 13.5 trillion yuan, while imports declined 1% to around 10 trillion. Meanwhile, in the first half of this year, China exported over 2 million vehicles, surpassing Japan and Germany to become the world's largest auto exporter for the first time. This is an increase of over 70% from the same period last year. For more on this, our Zhao Yang spoke with Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Novamarki Technologies. So China's foreign trade in the first seven months increased by 0.4%. So Jiahe, how do you see the external environment for the imports and export this year? Well, currently, if we look at the overall global uh, trading environment, it's actually quite bad. I mean, if you look at China's data, uh, you know, uh, stayed almost flat if you marry it by RMB. But if you marry it by dollar, it reduced a bit because the RMB has been depreciating against the dollar by about 3% this year. But that's a very small amount. I mean, if you if you look at the data of countries like South Korea, India, Vietnam, Philippines, who are supposed to, to be competitors of China uh, with the international trade, but actually their trade decreased uh, much more compared with the data published by China. So we're pretty confident about the you know, comparative advantage of the Chinese uh, international trade when we look at uh, the global market. That's basically because the global market is not very strong at the moment. Mm. So if we look at what's going on with the global market, it's been, it's been many things. I mean, likely inflation is still going on. Central banks are actually keeping their interest rates at a very high level, which de- depressed the consumption by a very, very large extent. I mean, you, you can't have interest rates go on like five to six percent and you have a strong consumption that that's not possible at this moment people would save their money rather than consume them also the the war is still going on between russia and ukraine which you know deterred a lot of investment and consumption in europe mm-hmm. so all these things really adding up so when when you, when you look at china's data it's, it's not growing it's decreasing slightly but if you compare this data with with the other countries you'll be more confident about this market mm-hmm. and what's the structure of china's foreign trade currently that's a very good question. I mean, uh, the, the more confident of the Chinese economy and industries would actually come from the fact that when you look into the structure of the trade, I actually got a picture that uh, shows me about the comparison uh, of China's export to Poland. Uh, and the change in the last two decades. So this picture tells you what's what are the largest 15 exports that China exported to Poland uh, in 2002, and what uh, were the largest 15 items uh, last year, which is 2022. So that's after two decades. So if you look at uh, the, the the data back 20, 20 years ago, uh, the largest exports we were exporting to Poland was things like shoes. Uh, you know, fish, uh, clothes, uh, these kind of things. 
But if you look at what we have been exporting last year, that's uh, battery, you know, a solar panel, uh, these kind of computer equipment, these kind of things, mobile phones. So these kind of things. So if you look into the structure of China's trade, you can find that we are now exporting things with with much more value adding compared with two decades ago or even one decade ago. Mm-hmm. So so that's actually uh, showing you that the industry is upgrading by a very large extent in China. Mm-hmm. And China has become the world's largest auto exporter in the first half of this year. So what are the main factors behind China's auto export surge and what proportion of China's cars are EVs right now? The new consumption right now is about 28 to 30 percent of the new consumption in China are, you know, uh, new energy vehicles. And if we talk about the export, uh, why China is taking such a large share in the global market, that's that's just because we're exporting good cars. I mean, I'm, I'm currently in Hainan right now, which is China's first province to announce that it will stop all the selling of uh, traditional oil cars, uh, I think it's by the year of 2030. Um, and, and you have many new energy vehicles on the street of Hainan, and they are really at a pretty good condition. Mm. So so that's because China is exporting quite good uh, new energy vehicles, and that's the quality of the product that, that is winning the global market. Mm. And talking about the EV development, if you look back at China's policy support for the EV industry, what has the government done to, you know, developing such an important industry? I think China has been doing a lot of things. I mean, if you look at the government's action, it's been giving like direct subsidy to uh, new energy vehicle. Uh, also, like if you apply for a license in metropolises like Beijing or Shanghai, then if you apply for the traditional uh, car plate, that, that's pretty difficult. But if you apply for new uh, new energy vehicles, then that's much easier in the past five years. So it's a lot of support has been given uh, from the government to the new energy vehicle industry. So when we talk about China's EV development, people always say about China's role in terms of producing the battery or charging facilities. And there is an article in the New York Times stressing that by the year 2030, China will make more than twice as many batteries as every other country combined. So that's an estimate. Is that really the case? That would be possible because if you look at the battery uh, production industry, it's it's an industry that is very much uh, capital intensive. So there are uh, pretty good capital producers now in China as well as Japan, South Korea. So I mean, these countries all believe that investing a heavy amount of capital into the the battery producing industry would actually uh, produce a very good industry for the economy, you know, employs a lot of people. Uh, And the advantage of China is that we are really a large country. I mean, 1.4 billion population, huge amount of GDP. So that means China can invest a very intensive amount of capital into this industry. And that's what the battery producing industry needs. I mean, it needs billions and billions of capital input for just one production line. So it's a lot of money. So a large economy can afford that. Mm. And at the very beginning of the development of the the modern EV, people talk about how difficult it was to lay out this uh, charging stations and facilities. And it wasn't easy to get investment, right? So how did China address these issues? That, that's right. I mean, one uh, one thing that blocks the development of new energy vehicle is actually the charging stations. And charging stations require a lot of things, like the fire safety issue. I mean, you, you, you can't have it everywhere. It might burn something. And also, it's, it's, a, it's a large pressure on the power grid. So it's a lot of um, upgrading that needs to be done for the power grids. So it's a lot of investment that you really need to do. I mean, China's uh, working on that. We have saw a lot of investments and government subsidy and bonds issued for these kind of products. But 
but it really takes time. I mean, especially for the power grid, mm-hmm. it's it's a very large pressure on uh, on the power grid. And we are also now seeing the intense competition in the EV industry from the U.S. and European countries. And the U.S. started to give subsidies to, you know, encourage the domestic production and the purchase of、uh, EVs. So, what do you make of that? And will it work on the long run in supporting the U.S. EV industry? The competition is always there, and especially for the new energy vehicle. I mean, now everyone recognizes that you know we we can't have traditional cars forever because the、uh, total amount of oil on this planet is actually limited, and you still need oil for other purposes like producing plastics stuff like that. So you, you just can't burn all the oil. So so finally, every country will have to go to the new energy vehicle. I think Charlie Munger talked about this a very long time ago, and he made a very、uh, correct prediction back. I think it's ten years ago. It's 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 a marvelous prediction he has ever made. So all the countries actually joining in because this industry actually employs a lot of people. You know, it's it's a great industry for every country, especially large economies like Europe and America. So everyone is coming in, and there will be competition. I'm I'm pretty sure about that. But the quality of Chinese products is also increasing. I mean, it's I think it's capable of facing a head-to-head、uh, competition with products from like Europe or Japan. But how will this kind of practice of protectionism impact the global economy or the globalization? If if you look at global trade, I mean protectionism is is never a good thing. I mean if you protect your economy, then then the other country would do the same thing. I mean no no one's stupid to to let you protect your own economy, and I don't protect mine. So that would be protection all over the place, and efficiency finally would be decreased. So so it's it's never a good thing. I mean look at how the world has been、uh, growing so rapidly ever since 1945.、Uh, after the World War Two, is basically because we 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 had the marvelous global trade all over the countries. Uh, the global trade in the past seven decades has been, you know,、um, never seen before.、Uh, so stopping all this trade is definitely bad for for all the countries. And、uh, there is another thing is that if a country starts protectionism by itself, but other countries.、Uh, Think that well, we won't join you. We want to trade、uh, with each other. Then that would divide two groups.、Uh, one group is、uh, with all the protection, the other is without. And the efficiency will improve for those countries that do not protect their own economies. And there will be difference between、uh, these two groups. That's Chen Jiahe, chief investment officer at Nova Marquee Technologies, speaking with Zhao Yang. This is World Today. We'll be back. This is World Today. I'm Zhao Ying, acting president of the International University Sports Federation. Leon Zetter has congratulated Chengdu for hosting a fantastic World University Games, saying that all the services were great and perfect. Over the past 12 days, around 6,500 athletes from from 113 countries and regions participated in the Universiade. Leon Zetter said the games have helped the athletes gain a deeper understanding of different cultures. FISU Secretary General Eric Sandron said Chengdu has established a benchmark for future Universiade games. For more on the Chengdu Universiade, we are now joined on the line by Paul Dong, founder of EverSports. Um, so, um, Paul,、uh, the Chengdu Universiade has come to a close, and we've seen enthusiastic praise from FISU officials regarding the event's organization and facilities. And we know this is one of the major international tournaments held in China post the easing of COVID restrictions. So, what do you make of the significance of this event? Well, I think、uh, the Universiade occurred between. 
uh, two summer editions of the Olympic Games. Although they are not that closely related because the University Games belong to the to FISL, the International Federation of University Sports, but uh, yeah, they do belong to the same uh, bigger families. I think uh, yeah, before Paris in 2024, I think the world uh, now have had such an opportunity to, besides the excellent hosting. Uh, the work done by Chengdu is also an opportunity for the sporting community to see how athletes are doing from multiple sports uh, when they get together uh, within a limited time to demonstrate their shape and form and see, you know, how next year the Paris Olympics will be able to uh, deliver uh, the promises. So I think. Uh, for the sporting world, for professionals organizing sporting events, I think it's a very important window uh, for the greater family of the uh, Olympic movement to see what's going on after the pandemic. And uh, I, I think it does uh, contribute a lot of confidence uh, in addition to the uh, you know organizational work, organizing work done by the host city or country, but at the same time, how united uh, various members, more than 100 members of the International Federation will, you know, demonstrate their cooperative spirit. I think that's, uh, yeah, that's a very positive and encouraging sign. Yes, yes. So what would you identify as the most memorable moments of the Sears Games? Well, I I think uh, when you don't expect something as, you know, uh, that dramatic as you would expect in the Olympic Games, because the university games are not only for student athletes uh, to demonstrate their excellence in, in mind and sports and body, uh, which is different because the Olympic Games would emphasize more on the sporting or athletic spirits. Uh, rather than like in the uh, for the university aid, where intellectual and cultural elements are much strongerly, I mean, I mean, encouraged to be exchanged during the event. But at the same time, when you lower kind of expectations in the uh, you know in the completion or the record-breaking marks from the university, and don't forget it's it happens once in every two years instead of four years. So it's more relaxed for student athletes to compete and give their best instead of, you know, uh, to be determined to win a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to, to do something great. So I think there are a lot of moments for people like me to look for something unique and different from what you would expect in the higher, faster, and stronger uh, and together, Olympics, I mean, for the university, yeah, you see, you know, how these intellectual students will care to find out more about it, you know, in a different culture, in a place that they, they have not even, you know, been to in a lot before the university aid and how they would communicate with the local people and how they would support each other without 
you know, caring too much about where they will finish. For example, uh, a couple of students finally won the Fair Play Award, uh, recognizing their efforts, supporting a stricken athletes competing against them. And they, you know, they, they care about the welfare of their competitors rather than fin- dashing toward the, the final finish line of the 800 mm-hmm. meter. Yes, yes. But we know that uh, the World University Games could often uh, could also serve as a platform for emerging talents to showcase their skills. So in your opinion, which individual athlete or team from Team China displayed the most promising potential for future international sporting events? Yeah, there are absolutely some of them. Uh, I, I try to follow, but I didn't watch everything. Uh, because it's it's overwhelming. It's it's a multi-sport event, and uh, and you know honestly, I I wish to see even more younger faces that I've never heard of their names or ever uh, you know uh, don't know exactly where they stand uh, in in the national team or on a similar level. But well. <laughs> I was a little surprised, and many people were not so surprised, that a lot of the gold medals actually went to already very mature and senior athletes representing the host of the country who just freshly came back from a lot of Victoria performances in, uh, in the Japan uh, Swimming Championships. They did steal a lot of show by winning the medals, but... Uh, I, I actually I would prefer to see more new faces to standing to stand on the podium. Mm-hmm. Okay, and also um, the university may leave a lasting legacy beyond its conclusion. So, how might the um, infrastructure, facilities, and initiatives introduced for the event be repurposed to benefit the local community and promote a culture of sports and wellness? Yeah, that's that's a great question because uh, you know we have been asking for Beijing to answer this question in 2008 and then again in 2022. But I believe uh, that Chengdu, once they decided to bid for the university aid, uh, I think they they themselves have a better idea of how to do this, how to achieve a sustain sustainable development, not only for future games or sporting events. But for its own development path to carry on their general plan to encourage their very, you know, heavily populated area to be more engaged and active in uh, athletic and uh, sporting and cultural events in the future. I think they have they themselves know what they are doing. But at the same time, I think there will be more cities, including Chengdu, that we can expect that they plan to bid something else down the road in future years, maybe the Olympic, the Olympic Games. We cannot rule Chengdu out for a future, uh, as a future host for the Olympic Summer Games or even Winter Games. Okay, thank you, Paul Don, founder of Ever Sports. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Elon Musk says he may need to get surgery before the proposed cage match with Mark Zuckerberg. 
Musk wrote on X on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter that he wanted to get his Nick Canaper back checked before fixing a date. He also announced that the fight, whenever it happens, would be streamed live on X. The two billionaires have been engaged in online jabs at each other since Meta launched its new social media platform, Threads, which may serve as an alternative to X. They have agreed to settle their differences physically, though it remains unclear whether the cage fight will actually take place. For more, we are now joined on the line by Andy Mark, tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Andy, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you guys today. Um, so the idea of a cage fight between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg has garnered significant attention. What are your initial thoughts on this unusual proposition and its potential implications, considering their prominent roles in the tech and business world? Well, that's a great question, and I think、um, it is unusual. But on the other hand, given the personalities of both Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, in a sense, it is inevitable.、Uh, Elon Musk, in particular, is a, not only a great technologist and business person, but he's also、uh, a great showman and knows how to capture attention and create controversy. So I would say that,、uh, given the competitive rivalry、uh, amongst these quote. Unquote tech titans.、Uh, in a sense, it's inevitable that there'd be some sort of mano a mano matchup between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. Um. So, I mean, what do you think has motivated such public displays or rivalry between such high-profile individuals, and how might their actions reflect on their respective respective images and brands? Well, I think it plays very well to both of their images and brands. Again,、uh, Elon Musk、uh, publicly portrays himself、uh, not only as an innovator, but someone who's a provocateur and is willing to、uh, upset the apple cart. Mark Zuckerberg is not only、uh, the founder of a very successful tech company. Uh, but he also prides himself publicly on his physical fitness. So, for example, he's known for、uh, training with Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and uh, even uh, on uh, social media、uh, has been shown to do a very, very tough CrossFit、uh, wad or workout of the day called Murph, and did it in what sounds like an amazingly short amount of time, which would show that he's very, very fit. So,、uh, I think it plays into both of their Uh, brands, both of their positioning, and again, I think it's win-win、um, mm-hmm. that they generate a lot of attention for their respective companies, for their uh, their own uh, public profiles. So again, I see this as a kind of an inevitable collision or matchup. Okay, so this rivalry between、um, Musk and Zuckerberg seems to have emerged around the launch of Meta's Threads,、uh, which is positioned as an alternative to X. So, how do you interpret this competitive dynamic within the tech industry? Sure. Well, I think that actually the launching of Threads has only exacerbated this competitive rivalry. One thing we have to understand about Silicon Valley that、uh, it's driven by、uh, what we can call alpha males, meaning these are almost always men. Uh, but、uh, men who not only want to be successful, but seen as dominating 
their peers and their competitors. So uh, this rivalry between Elon Musk and uh, Mark Zuckerberg actually, I think, predates Threads. And in fact, uh, Threads might even just be uh, a way for Mark Zuckerberg to uh, try to one-up Elon Musk uh, after his acquisition of Twitter, now known as X, of course. Well, I mean, a cage fight may have both entertainment and symbolic value because there will be a winner and a loser, right? So how might the outcome of this physical confrontation influence the ongoing competitive landscape between X and Meta? No, absolutely. So I think that uh, the bragging rights uh, for whoever uh, would win if uh, this match indeed does take place uh, could be very, very significant, especially if it ends dramatically, say, one of them knocks out the other with a single punch or a single kick. Uh, I think that that would have uh, enormous, uh, again, uh, it would strengthen the social capital of the winner. Uh, and that could very likely have uh, business benefits as well for their companies. So this is not only, uh, I think, entertainment and for ego, but there actually may be a very sound business reason for doing this. But it, of course, is high risk as well. So if either of them loses very dramatically, that could also damage their business interests. Okay, so how do you think this situation might serve as a reflection of the broader intersection between business, technology, and popular culture? And what conversations does it spark about the boundaries of acceptable behavior for public figures? Wow, that's a great question. And I think that um, what we have to look at here is the intersection of several identities. So uh, a successful business executive, uh, an entertainer, and a media mogul. So uh, we've had successful business people in the past who have not been very well known. Uh, we have some that have become celebrities. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, is a great example uh, of this. But with both uh, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, we have to add in a third identity, which is that of a media mogul. So Elon Musk, of course, owns Twitter, which is a very, very uh, influential global media platform. Uh, Facebook, we could consider again another global, very influential media platform. So uh, we see the intersection of these three identities as a business executive, uh, as an entertainer, uh, and uh, as a media mogul. Hmm. Okay, so how do you think the use of social media in announcing and promoting this cage fight reflect the evolving role of social media in shaping public perception, very briefly? Oh, very. It, of course it does. Um, and I think this is that that's the point, right? Uh, in a way, the medium is the message. Uh, I also want to end on this, that uh, who's going to win is a very, Yeah, very, I also uh, want to ask you question. this. Okay. Uh, do you want me to answer that now or shall I wait? Uh, you can answer it now because we're running out of time. Okay, great. So uh, because this is going to be a mixed martial arts type of contest where there's striking, uh, kicking, uh, as well as grappling and BJJ, uh, Elon Musk is significantly taller. I believe he's about six inches taller and 30 pounds heavier. 
than Mark Zuckerberg. So I think uh, certainly this will be a very exciting match to watch if it happens, uh, given that it is mixed martial arts and not just Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, it's certainly Elon Musk, I think, has a size, uh, has a reach and weight. Okay, okay. Thank you, Andy. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.